Hola, Joshua Smizer de Leon here, founder and host of the Basel podcast. Thanks for listening to the show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo, Boricua, and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on savechicagomedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos a todos. This is Joshua Smizer de Leon for the Paseo podcast. Thank you all for listening to this, watching this, wherever, whenever you are. We're going to be talking about an interesting topic that, funny enough, I, I came across in my morning read of the news. It's an article published in Insider. is titled, How Hurricane Maria Pushed Young Puerto Ricans Towards Supporting Independence, which I found to be really interesting because uh, we've talked about this on the show before, but uh, Puerto Rico's political parties are very much uh, set up and looked at in a, through a different lens than they are here in the United States, where you're going to have your two major parties, maybe some third party candidates that are in the mix. But in Puerto Rico, a lot of those ideologies that shape those political parties are really rooted in Puerto Rico status. And what are those three major status outlooks? You're talking statehood, you're talking commonwealth, you're talking uh, independence. Uh, and for years, we've seen uh, the influence of the United States government, the, the relationship between uh, that government and Puerto Rico's government. Uh, it's kind of brought uh, the favorability of independence uh, to highs, to lows, and now we're seeing kind of a, a spike there. Uh, statehood tends to be the majority uh, supported status based off of what I've seen in the conversations we've had with people on the show, but it seems to be getting uh, the, the gap between uh, preference for statehood and other status options, that gap seems to seems to be tightening. Uh, so we have two awesome guests to join the show today to kind of help us make sense of this, speak to some of the data they're, they're looking at, speak to some of the people they've talked to and how they uh, look at Puerto Rico's political status. Uh, so I, I reached out to an awesome reporter at Insider, Gwen Aviles. Uh, she's a Boricua senior reporter. Uh, she actually uh, works directly on Insider's Voices of Color. Definitely take a look at that, especially if you're really interested to news that talks about the news through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've also invited Francisco Praskauer Valerio. Uh, he's an MIT student studying computer science, economics, and data science with a minor in uh, political science. So we got a really cool panel today. Uh, Francisco's been uh, analyzing a number uh, of different data tables to kind of get a sense of where young Puerto Ricans stand uh, on uh, the way they look at Puerto Rico's status uh, and political parties. Uh, but before we get into the nitty gritty of you know taking the temperature, taking the pulse of young Puerto Ricans, uh, Gwen, uh, why don't we start with you? What should our audience know about you? Sure. So thank you so much, Joshua, for having me on the show. Uh, I'm Gwen, as Joshua said, I'm a senior reporter for uh, Insider's Voices of Color section. Before that, I reported for NBCNews.com's Diversity Verticals, and my work really focuses on communities of color, race and identity. Uh, I cover topics, all kinds of topics, meaning 
so many different things, but special attention given to higher ed, um, politics and arts and culture. Those are kind of my favorite things to cover. See, I knew you were going to explain your beat way better and more eloquently than I could. Uh, it's like there's so many th there's so many layers to reporting on things through a DE&I lens. Um, and you've been doing some really cool stuff. So people listening, we'll Thank put you. Gwen's link to Gwen's reporting in the show notes. Um, but after you listen to this episode, definitely go check out her reporting. Uh, Francisco, what should our audience know about you? I'm an undergrad at MIT right now. Um, so I, I grew up in Guaynabo, Puerto Rico. And during that time, I was actually lucky enough to get to represent Puerto Rico at like various international math competitions. These days, when I'm not at school, I live in Aguadilla with my family. Um, I was actually there for the last year and a half uh, while I was taking a break from school. Um, and I'm interested in the intersection of politics and data. I actually, while I was taking a break, I worked for the polling firm called Change Research. Um, and yeah, long term in my career, I'm looking to use my data skills in the political world to help uplift both you know the population at large and and puerto rican specifically love it well thank you both for making the time to come on the show today when i wanted to start with you so you reported on young puerto ricans telling you how uh, hurricane maria and other crises in puerto rico have really pushed them towards the independence movement on the island uh can you tell us a little bit about, a bit more about that like what was the age range of the young people that you were speaking to sure so I actually went into the story not um, not with the intention of reporting on how uh, young Puerto Ricans are leaning more towards independence. Mm. That was something I happened to find through the sample of people I spoke with. But I went in really questioning um, how Puerto Ricans' stat uh, Puerto Ricans' identities have been complicated by the question of status um, because things don't fit neatly into a box, and there are so many nuances and complexities and even with you know, the fact that there is a really large Puerto Rican diaspora here in the US and more Puerto Ricans are moving from the island to the mainland US. And there's just a lot of different dynamics that are going on. That's how I approached the story. When I actually sat down to write it, you know, I, I reached out to many different Puerto Rican organizations, many different Puerto Rican uh, student organizations, uh, political organizations, advocacy organizations, and, um, the people who responded, the people who were the most, you know, willing to talk were actually young Puerto Ricans. They felt very passionate about um, about speaking on this topic. And so the age range I ended up talking to, they were probably between the lowest was 20, around 20 years old. And the highest was, I believe, 26, 27 years old. So it really fits into the that kind of spectrum. So Gen Z, millennials, um, that's really the range that I focused on for this story. In your piece, you you shared a number of quotes from different Boricuas you spoke to. Um, can you, just for our audience, share a little bit more about those stories? Most of the people I spoke to were people who grew up in the island, lived there, and are here now, like in the mainland US, scattered across the country. Um, they came here, the common thread between the majority of the stories that I heard was they came here for you know more opportunity because of the fiscal crisis and other crises that are affecting the island. Um, and they they really have this deep rooted connection to the island and want to be there, but feel like they can't be there right now, or they want to seek greater opportunity here and then hopefully return. That was kind of the through line um, for a lot of them. They had grown up knowing about Puerto Rico's political status. There's really no way to not have grown up on the island and not have some sort of awareness of 
um, you know, what is going on here and the different challenges and the ways that the island has been oppressed. Um, so there's really no way not to know that. So they had a working knowledge of that, but really as, as a similar, I think, across culture, when you get of a certain age, in your 20s, college is a really big time for exploration and really, you know, questioning your identity. So as for, for most cultures, I think the through line with these young Puerto Ricans was they got to college, they had to start thinking about, you know, the realities of um, what they wanted to do for their future, their economic realities, um, what opportunities were available to them. And that really ignited them to um, to pay closer attention to these status debates, not only, you know, within their own families, but a lot of them have taken um, these debates, these their feelings about what the island status should be and have brought them into advocacy or activism context, you know, whether they were um, uh, calling for the resignation of the governor of Puerto Rico or whether they were calling for better resources for more, uh, for the U.S. to, you know, obliterate the Jones Act, which the island has been under for X amount of years, right? They wanted to, they still want to fight these things. And now they feel like they're coming of age and they're in a better position to. They see themselves as the future of the island. And it's true. I mean, again, across across cultures, the youth really is our future. They're the ones who are going to have to be dealing with all these different issues that the island has been going through. And these issues have been passed down to them. So now they're standing up and saying, hey, this is not okay. And um, I believe in the beauty of Puerto Rico. I believe in the future of Puerto Rico and I'm going to fight for it. That seemed to be like the really common, um, you know, expression throughout my interviews. I was very struck and struck and I'm often very struck by how passionate Puerto Ricans are. They are so caring about their island. You know, they just, if you talk to them, it just really comes out in every conversation. Even if the conversation wasn't related to Puerto Rico's status, even if it was about food or something different, you would just see that pride of culture um, whenever you talk to them. So, yeah, no, it's super interesting. So would you say, would it be fair to say more, more people were moving towards independence or were more people moving away, more young people moving away from the idea that continuing the Commonwealth is the answer? I would say both. I mean, again, you know, as a reporter, we're dealing with word counts. This is something that can be a book. And many, many people have written about this. People have written books on this, right? This is something that is not going to be summed up succinctly in a 1,200 word piece, right? Um, and so from what I had seen from the interviews that I had had, the majority of the people, with the exception of Francisco, actually, and one other person, <laughs> were very much leaning towards independence. We're very much like, we don't see Commonwealth as the answer, this current status as the answer. And we see independence as the answer. That said, I understand based on the conversations with Francisco and that one other person and other conversations I've had outside of the story that there are people who um, might not be fully on board with independence, are not sure how that would work out, are not sure how that would really obliterate uh, Puerto Rico's problems or how Puerto Rico could get ahead without the resources of the U.S. government, right? So to them, it, it kind of remains a question mark um, as to whether independence is the right answer. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think one interesting conversation I had with the other person who was not like really gung-ho about independence for the story was she wasn't sure, you know, she admitted she wasn't sure. And that's all right to not 
be sure this is so complicated. This does extend back to Spanish colonialism, you know, in the 1800s, right? So there is just a huge context for this where um, I think sometimes independence voices can can be the loudest voices in the room. And that was something that was expressed to me when reporting the story in my conversations with people, that these are people who, you know, make their make their case known, make their viewpoints known um, in a way that sometimes maybe people who feel really conflicted or ambivalent about what the status Puerto Rico should be don't. So I think it's both. I think it's people moving away from the Commonwealth because they've seen not only from Hurricane Maria, but from the, the debt, the fiscal crisis, from the earthquakes, from the uh, private, the electricity situation on the island, right? They're seeing all these things happen. And they're like, okay, this current situation is not working, um, but they're still not pro-independence. And then you have people who are like, this current situation is not working and we need to be by ourselves. We, we need to have an independent government. Things like the internet, you know, uh, literature, re- reporting, you know, those things have made this generation, I feel, of Puerto Ricans much more in tune or at least having the access and opportunity to be a lot more in tune on what that relationship looks like and what the ripple effects of that relationship are. So, you know, talk about having like key talking points that you can just hit. It's a lot easier if you're um, trying to advocate for independence. You know, you can make a very strong case. Theoretically, you could pro- you could make a, a strong case for statehood, too, which is why I find this debate so fascinating. And even our Congress here in the U.S., we have two bills that are trying to address the issue of Puerto Rico status. You know, I like the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act a lot better because I love the idea of debate and people with delegates, you know, having delegates. It just gives me that a constitutional convention type feel like that feels like a, a bit better of a space. But ultimately, it comes down to you're still putting the future of your island, of your home in the hands of someone who you feel is colonizing you. So is that even the right way to, to go? It just it, it feels like such a layered discussion. I don't think anybody's ever happy when they're done having the discussion. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to like specifically focus on these factors with you, Gwen, because you had mentioned in this article uh, this the term Generation Maria. Uh, and that you that you use that term when you're referring to young Puerto Ricans. Now, that's not the first time that term has been used. You know, I've seen that been used in The Intercept in the past. Other outlets have used that term, uh, but was really curious. I mean, you mentioned a number of really good factors that could maybe shift someone's mind and how they view uh, Puerto Rico's status. You know, why focus specifically on Hurricane Maria as an inflection point? Yeah, I think for a couple of different reasons. So. Of course, the four-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria just passed, and that is, you know, unfortunately a news peg, right? That's unfortunately when people start, uh, who are outside of Puerto Rico and these issues aren't affecting them on a daily basis, uh, start paying attention. And my, you know, outlet's audience is not a predominantly Puerto Rican audience, so that's something to pay attention to, right? Um, And I also think... uh, went from speaking with people, I mean, Jenner, Maria, Hurricane Maria had such a profound impact on them. It was really, again, it coincided with all these crises that you had mentioned, but it was really an inflection point for them because it was just so obvious. It was so blatant, you know, in their eyes, there was no looking away from it of, you know, what they had expressed to me, which was the failure of the U.S. government to really take care of them, right? 
And even still, like with the the way that the death toll was uh, was measured and covered up in Puerto Rico, right? Like people saw people saw on the ground. Puerto Ricans saw that there were not enough resources. They didn't have the healthcare infrastructure to take care of people. People died because they didn't have electricity and they didn't have generators, right? People died because there wasn't access to basic resources. People went hungry. People that I spoke to, you know, this is pretty much across the board. They attribute that mass death to the failures of the government. And so I think, yes, this is the most recent um, or one of the more recent tragedies that occurred occurred in the last few years. And it was just it was eye opening, right? Like, okay, the debt, you know, maybe I could see how that is like a, how does that really apply to me as a, a young Puerto Rican, right? Like it, it can maybe seem like some sort of unfamiliar or, or foreign concept. And I say that, and I don't mean to downplay at all, like the, uh, the thoughtfulness that young Puerto Ricans have, but you're a young person, right? Like maybe you don't, it doesn't seem as immediate as affecting your life, but then you see this hurricane happened, right? And even if you're on, if you're in the mainland, as one of the people I spoke with for the story, he's based in Florida when this all went down. So before Hurricane Maria happened, and his his father was on the island, and he couldn't get in touch with his father. He could not figure out for a couple of weeks whether his father was all right, whether, um, you know, everything, uh, other people in his family were, were all right. And like the devastation, four years later, that doesn't go away. It's still like, one of his most predominant memories. And it's something common that other people I've spoken to have brought up, like just that fear and that panic of not being able to get in touch with your family. Like there's no way that that doesn't leave a traumatic lingering effect on you. These issues were were known. They kind of existed and were discussed, maybe intersect and as maybe intersecting, but maybe also in silos, whereas something as massive as Hurricane Maria happens, and that's kind of then you then it really starts to click for not only people that are in the work and understanding of this context, but for people that might be on the periphery or might not really, you know, invest time in that. And they're just kind of in La Brega. They're just this is how life is. So I just keep it moving. Um, so when something like Hurricane Maria happens, that's kind of like a full stop. Like you kind of have to pay attention. And then you start thinking. Okay, why is this happening? Oh, that's connected to X issue. Why is this happening? It's connected to Y issue. It's not just, you know, the Puerto Ricans living on the island who were who couldn't look away from this and who were ignited by this, right? By Hurricane Maria. I really think that there was um given the 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 mass exodus of Puerto Ricans that had been occurring before the hurricane, but there really was even more so a mass exodus at post hurricane and I think it ignited uh, the diaspora of Puerto Ricans in a way that they weren't, you know, ignited before. There, there are many different generations of Puerto Ricans. There are those who, you know, are first gen who live on the island, right? And then you have people here who are uh, a quarter or half Puerto Rican or whose family has been here um, for multiple generations. And yes, we know like Puerto Rico is part of the U.S., right? But, and so it doesn't have like the same context as like, immigration from other countries, right? Um, but there's still like, there's these dynamics within Puerto Rican culture where you have, there, there's multi-generations of Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans living on the island and, and living in the mainland US. And so I think, yeah, I think it felt, I'll, I'll speak personally, right? Puerto Rico has always had a special place in my heart, but hearing about Hurricane Maria and 
having still had some family on the island, like it ignited me in a way that uh, I hadn't been ignited beforehand uh, because there's no way you look objectively at a tragedy like that uh, and uh, aren't affected by it. Um, and so I think there is a generation, not only of Puerto Ricans who were born on the island and raised there, but Puerto Ricans here uh, in the mainland U.S. who are uh, who have woken up to the political status of Puerto Rico too, in a way, because we were never taught about Puerto Rico in our in our history classes. I didn't learn anything about Puerto. Like, what is that? What does a Commonwealth mean, right? What is like? What is a colony, right? Like, these were just things that just never came up in in our like traditional education system, and and to my knowledge, are still not really being brought up, right? Um, it's just now that we're having Indigenous Peoples Day um, and really kind of re-understanding like Christopher Columbus's role and re-understanding like what, how history can be told from different perspectives. So I think there has been a, a lack of education that uh, uh, young people, young Puerto Ricans have been subject to. And uh, if you, you don't know what you don't know. And so Hurricane Maria really, really brought that up of, wow, there is this whole history and uh, people are reclaiming it, I think, myself included. In 2016, I was super into the presidential election and, and federal elections. And, but even like living in Puerto Rico, I didn't really care that much about, you know, the elections in Puerto Rico. I was like, oh, whatever. But then, you know, after 2017, you know, and everything that was going on with like, uh, like all the corruption scandals and everything like that, it just really reminded me like, okay, hold on. I need to like actually focus on this and, and we need to, you know, fix all the issues that we're having and, and you know, elect new people that won't, you know, keep being like corrupt, letting supplies rot and stuff like that. I think that was very much an igniting moment too. It was a light switch moment. Um, similar to you, Gwen, I was in school. I didn't hear about my history in school. I heard about, I heard about my Puerto Rican history around the dinner table. You know, I heard my, I heard my Puerto Rican history and my grandfather's immigration story. You know, I heard my Puerto Rico, I heard about my Puerto Rico history based off my mom having to live on the Eli and live in the Chicago and have this dual life and be in that unfortunate yeah. space of neither the aquí or allá, you know, one foot in, one foot out the door. Um, and being too Puerto Rican for the Americans and being too American for the Puerto Ricans. My Puerto Rican identity was very few and far between in the academic space. Um, and maybe two pages or a page. And it was all about how Puerto Rico was a prize that was won from the Spanish by, by the United States. As we've seen here in the U.S., when it comes to school boards, uh, states can have a lot of control over what young people see in the classroom. Uh, and I would argue that Puerto Rico is no different. Um, and so it's an interesting it's an interesting space to be in as a puerto rican so seeing something like hurricane maria it seems like a similar thread between all three of us here you know that was like oh shit like i know there's stuff that's like not perfect on la isla but talk about putting a magnifying glass on what those issues are you know hurricane maria unfortunately you know as unfortunate as it was did do that um so it's interesting. I mean, even the times I've gone back to to the island, you know, you still see blue tarps, you still see community struggling. And of course, you know, like you've mentioned before, Gwen, it's not just, it doesn't just begin and end with Hurricane Maria. This is stuff that's been building. Um, but Hurricane Maria was kind of like, for lack of a better term, the, the a moment that really opened the floodgates and connected a lot of dots for people and got them animated and active to actually make their perspectives 
on Puerto Rico's future heard, which I think is a big reason why we had a master class in democracy when Puerto Ricans ousted Ricardo Rosselló from the governor's mansion. I mean, you're talking about a million plus Boricuas that all, you know, come to one spot on the island when there's three million Boricuas on the island. I mean, you're, you're talking about, I mean, that's a massive force. And that's just the people that could make it to San Juan. Gwen, when you were talking to young Puerto Ricans and they're telling you, you said mentioned a couple of people, uh, you know, Francisco yourself included, like, oh, you know, uh, you know, I lean, I'm leaning more towards statehood. You had a lot of Puerto Ricans that were leaning more towards independence. Where does that drop them on the political party spectrum? Yeah, it's funny because they didn't really talk about being closely aligned with the corresponding political party. It was more about the ideology of being independent or associating yourself with the independence movement versus like, okay, I'm like gung-ho about the the independence party in Puerto Rico. Some people actually um, didn't vote in in the plebiscite elections that the most recent one, uh, because that was, I believe, the only one the people that I spoke to were eligible for. So some of them didn't vote in them. Um, It's less about like the actual like, organization of the established political parties and more so I think about the idea. Now I think that changes, you know, depending on who you talk to. Perhaps it was just like the the group of people I happened to speak with who didn't really see themselves like closely aligned with the political parties that are already established on the island. Um but I think the idea of independence it's is one that extends beyond the political parties uh that are established. And it's probably also yeah, something that you see here in the U.S. as well, right? Um, just you have these parties that have been going on for for so long, and they don't necessarily they that's what they they've been here, but they don't represent like everyone's different viewpoints. And so that was the sense I got from talking to people. They didn't really feel represented by the established parties, but if they could, like in the next election, they probably would. Some of them had expressed like voting for uh, voting against statehood. Yeah. And, and you, you had mentioned this, you know, the, it might've been the sample size you were speaking to and sample sizes matter, right? I mean, it, it, it'd be amazing if we could talk to every young Boricua to, to get their perspective on things. Unfortunately, you know, I don't see a lot of that research done. I mean, I've seen, I think it was change research did, did some, some research on rank choice voting and it was uh, pulled. Uh, that was data for progress. Ah, I did it for, for that Francisco. Okay, thank you. Then, man, thank you for remembering that. I appreciate you keeping me honest. Were you on that team? No, but I was. Okay. I was talking to them about it. So. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Super cool. Yeah. So um, they, they helped me with the poll that I did. Uh, yeah. Polling the United States about Puerto Rico. Tell us a little bit about the research you've been doing because you have all. I, that's where I kind of wanted to segue here. Uh, specifically on sample sizes, because you've been analyzing some data around this, looking at some data trends on where Puerto Ricans stand on status, political affiliation. But tell us a little bit about your background and uh, some of the research you, you've you been doing. You touched on it uh, briefly, briefly when we were talking about data for progress, but give us a little insight into what you've been doing. Sure. I mean, most of my research has just been like looking at what's publicly available and, and trying to find some stuff. Because um, I, like I said, I worked for Change Research for nine months. Um, but we didn't really pull Puerto Rico. We were pulling uh, mm-hmm. outside of Puerto Rico, like, you know, the United States, yes. different states, stuff like that. Yeah. But um, I did get the chance to run one poll asking, um, like, U.S., uh, mainland U.S. people what they thought about Puerto Rico, like, 
Um, and it, it was kind of expanding the uh, the discussion because most polls only say like statehood, right? Mm-hmm. But I know that we need, we wanted, I wanted to know more about what do they think about other options. So we also asked like, um, you know, do you consider like Puerto Ricans to be Americans? Um, what do you think of independence? What do you think of like allowing uh, Puerto Ricans to choose between all the statuses? What do you think of allowing them to vote for Congress and the Electoral College? Uh, and if you had to pick, like, what would you say that would be the best for Puerto Rico? So it was interesting to kind of expand that conversation and see what uh, the nation really thinks about Puerto Rico status. What are, what are these sources that you've been pulling from? Because I was keeping up with your Twitter feed, man. And I was like, <laughs> dude, I got a headache looking at the first table. I was like, you are you are a mathematician, man. Like you are killing it. So and it really helped me kind of make sense of things. So uh, but you've been pulling from different sources. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what those sources are uh, and, and what you've been analyzing. Before I go into the data, uh, I do want to set a little bit more over the context because we, we've talked about the pro statehood, pro Commonwealth and um, pro independence parties. But there's two new parties that really made um, big gains. Where it was their first time as a party in Puerto Rico and, and they had strong performances. Um, on the left, you have Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana. Um, they're like an anti-corruption party. And for status, they don't actually align with a particular status. They just align with um, setting up a process between the non-colonial options, which they define as statehood, free association, or independence, um, and uh, let, you know, letting people decide. Um, and yeah, so they're they're um, like an anti-corruption progressive party. And then on the right, you have Proyecto Dignidad, um, which is like a Christian fundamentalist party. Um, I think they are also anti-Commonwealth, but they don't really talk about it much. They just talk about, you know, culture wars and stuff like that. Like they're basically our version of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's tough because there's not that much data available. Uh, our political data sphere is not as developed as it is in the mainland. But there are, I did find, I have found over some time, just some polls that we can look at to, to, to look at this data. So the first thing I want to talk about is how status preference and uh, party affiliation are becoming decoupled, right? I mean, this has to be true because statehood got 53% of the vote in the referendum, but the PNP only got 33% for the governorship. So how did, how did that happen, right? Um, so I looked at a few polls and... About one-sixth of the uh, PPD voters for the governorship for Charlie Delgado, about one-third of the Alexander Lugaro voters for um, Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana, about a fifth, actually, this is really surprising, about a fifth of the pro-independence party voters voted for statehood. And like almost half of uh, the Proyecto de Dignidad. Um, so I, this is, I, can't, I got this from a couple of polls. There was one from El Nuevo Día um, that it had... Uh, it's separated by PNP, PPD, third-party voters overall, and um, independents that didn't identify with uh, a party. And they had like a, um, yeah, a fourth of the third-party voters, a seventh of the PPD voters, and a third of the independents voting. Yes, and there was also a survey done by NYU in conjunction with the the, the show Jugando Pelotaura, which is like a, a political show. Um, it comes on, I think it's every weekday or something like that. Uh, so that one wasn't a scientific poll. It wasn't, I don't think it was weighted, uh, but they got very similar numbers. Um, and then data for progress also, if you look, they they did a poll and they got that, yeah, two-fifths of Lugada voters, one-seventh of Charlie Delgado voters, 
and more than a quarter of Dunbar voters voted for yes on the referendum. So that there were statehood supporters that voted for candidates that didn't support statehood. Okay, so that's interesting to know. And then if I'm hearing you correctly, two new parties, Movimiento, and I forget what the other party you mentioned was, but they're the ones that's a bit more like um, uh, like agnostic, religious right, status agnostic, yeah, yeah, yeah. religious right. So these static agnostic uh, uh, parties were actually had a good showing in the last uh, in the last uh, governor's election. Uh, yeah, well, last, um, last election general election for the island. Yeah, the uh, Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana they got about fifteen percent of the vote, and Proyecto Dignidad, the the fundamentalist party, they got about seven percent of the vote. So that so that tells us. Uh, again, keep me honest here. That tells us that there is there is a space to capture a block of voters when your approach to Puerto Rico static status is more agnostic than yeah. hardlined. As time goes on, people care less and less about status when they're voting because they're caring more about actual governance. Basically, Did the data give you insight into what those factors are? Because, like we said at the top of the show, and the the issue of Puerto Rico status was the was the dominating factor for generations. We're talking about voting based off of status. So to see agnostic parties, you know, get a chunk of that voter block, you know, what can you share a little bit about what the data was telling you? Those other factors that were kind of overtaking, going towards a post ELA age in Puerto Rican politics. ELA being Commonwealth. In 2012 was the first time that Puerto Rican voters rejected the Commonwealth. Right. We, we had a yes or no referendum on the Commonwealth with the second question that was boycotted, but the first question was not boycotted. And people said, we don't like the Commonwealth anymore. That's the first time that happened. And, you know, subsequent events have kind of confirmed, like, yeah, the ELA doesn't really make sense. It's not what it was lived up to be. You know, it's not the consent of the governed doesn't really matter. We're not, you know, autonomous. Because we had a, a Supreme Court decision in 2015 called Sanchez Valle, which uh, kind of got rid of the autonomy argument. And then, of course, we had PROMESA, where we had an unelected board, like, ruling over us. Um, and the other, the second thing is, uh, that I wanted to talk about was, like, the quality of life in Puerto Rico has just been crashing. Um, you know, the, the benefit, one of the big benefits of the Commonwealth was the Section 936 laws, which allowed the, the pharmaceutical industry to boom. They got rid of those in the 90s, and ever since, things have just been going down uh, since the 2000s. And then around 2015 was when things really accelerated in terms of like quality of life, right? We had like, in 2015, we had the drought, you know, I was freaking rationing water once every three days I had water. Like, tell that to someone, you know, in the States. Isn't that crazy? Uh, 2016, even before all the issues that are happening now, even before Maria, there was like a huge wave of blackouts. Obviously, there's a debt crisis, there's Maria. And then recently, like the earthquakes and COVID. So all those things, you know, combining, it's like, wow, it just kind of sucks to live in Puerto Rico. And um, just that people have not been seeing results from the PNP and the PPD. Um, and they're increasingly, you know, just seeing like corruption, spending way too much money on things and not getting results. So I think those are all the kind of things that combine for people to be like, okay, well, they're not doing well, a, good, a good job at governing the country. And they're not like uh, helping us find the status that we want. So why would we vote? And then just back, backing up a little bit here, Francisco, high level view. So you mentioned the PNP, the PPD. Those are those have been the two parties that have essentially just been kind of tag teaming running Puerto Rico's yeah. government. Yes. Can you give Since our. I think the 40s. Yeah. It's been a while. It's yeah. been a minute, almost a, cent almost a century. Um, for people, and I'm thinking like specifically for people in the, the, the diaspora, 
second generation, you know, you're just not able to, for whatever reason, stay as in contact as they'd like to be on what political parties or what. Uh, just for our audience, can you give, can you just like give a quick description? Where does PNP fall? Where does the PPD fall in terms of Puerto Rico status? Oh yeah, the PNP, they're the pro-statehood party. Um, they're definitely like the biggest tent out of all the parties um, in terms of left or right ideology. Um, you have mainstream liberals, you have like hard right conservatives, all kind of together in this big tent, which is, I think is a little untenable. Um, and then you have the PPD, the pro-Commonwealth party, that's Luis Manuel Marin's party. Um, that's why, you know, such a big uh, influence on Puerto Rican politics because of him. Um, and yeah, they're, they're in favor of the Commonwealth. Uh, they tend to be uh, mostly like Democrats. Um, although nowadays they're, they're starting to get a little more conservative as well. So, yeah. And then the, just to, again, just MVC was the more agnostic, more political corruption was their, was their focus. Yeah. And, and progressivism. And progressivism, PIP in the Bendistas. Um, and then uh, PD was the more uh, religious right, ag uh, still agnostic on status, but priority was um, religious conservatism. So looking at the demographics, though, you know, Gwen mentioned she was talking to Gen Zers, millennials. Let's stick to that that demographic. So we're talking people that are eligible voters. So 18 to, I mean, I guess millennials are what now Thir to 35, 40, 40, 40, no, I think early forties is millennials now, if I'm not mistaken. God. Yeah. So 18 to yeah. like 40, so I like 18 to early forties range is what we're talking about. Yeah. I've got some under 45, under 35, under 25 stats. So okay. Go through Dope. Yeah. Can you go through, through each of those? So what were the, sure. what was the age range and then where were they falling in terms of uh, their. So it depends on the, on the poll. Um, what exactly, you know, that poll had available, but overall we can say young people, they definitely have significantly different party affiliation than old people. Uh, the general consensus is that Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana is in the clear lead. And then um, the P uh, PPD and PNP, they're close behind in some order. Um, it's different for different polls. Uh, so the first thing I looked at, uh, which was probably like the best data that we have for this, was um, a poll by El Nuevo Dia. Um, they gave us a breakdown of each candidate supporters by age. So like this percent are 18 to 24, for example. Uh, so I had to kind of like reverse that and say, okay, looking at all the 18 to 24s, what percent went to each party? So I was able to do that, um, you know, with some Excel math. Um, and in general, the result is. Um, under 25 year, uh, under 25 year olds, NBC is crushing it. They have doubled the vote share of uh, the PNP and, and PPD. Um, so they have like 40% plus. Um, and then if you go to under 35 year olds, they still have a, a decently healthy margin, um, with the other three parties still close behind. And even under 45s, under 45 years old, um, they're competitive or possibly winning. Um, and we can see that the PIP is also strong with the youth, but not as much as MBC. However, if you, it's like completely flipped when you look at over 45. MBC um, actually comes in fifth place um, with like 3% or something crazy small like that. And um, the PNP, the PNP and the PPD, they're combining for 75% of the vote. So you still have the older people voting for the traditional parties. And um, the thing with the PIP is their, their support is actually less... Um, kind of polarized by age, they still have a decent amount of support um, with older people. That's like the older independentistas that are still around. Um, 
one thing to note though is we're talking about all these young voters but they still make up a small portion of the electorate so under 35 it's only like a quarter and even under 45 it's still less than half it's it's uh 40 percent of the electorate anywhere from 35 up yeah um you get at least 70 percent, and it's kind of increasing as you go up mm -hmm. so by the time you get to the 65 year olds it's like almost 90 percent yeah. um but yeah you could like Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana, they just sadly go down until they're in like the single digits with mm -hmm. people 55 and over. Um, and the people, they're more like balanced. Um, so they have, they're definitely stronger with the under 35 year olds, but they're still put up a respectable performance uh, over 35. That's so interesting to see, like, th just going back to some of the, the factors that we've talked about on, in our conversation so far. I mean, things like the Jones Act, uh, La Junta, Hurricane Maria. These are all big things that have impacted the island in, in a multitude of ways. And yet uh, this older population that has probably been more privy and, and seen and lived through a lot of this stuff, not to say that younger people haven't, but they've lived a lot longer to have that added context are still unwavering in their support of these two political parties that have been leading the island over the, the past few decades. It's, it's interesting to not see even a little bit of chip in the armor you know, does that make sense? Like, There's a little that, bit of a chip. And that, that was actually I was going to bring up later, but I'll bring it up now that you okay. brought it up. Mm -hmm. um, I think one p thing that, you know, if you're in the diaspora, you might miss this, is just how, like, how big of an impact the the paper they had, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and specifically Luis Munoz Marin, mm -hmm. um, and why that would make the paper the so popular. Like, you know, regardless of, of, you know, his strategies may have been flawed, but for people on the island, he it was like bringing people, bringing Puerto Rico from like the poorest, um, the poorest place in like the world almost to like one of the richest places in Latin America. So um, that's what people here think, and and that's why the old older generation has such an uh, appreciation for the Pepe de because it was like that was the uh, the Commonwealth what was brought was what brought us out of poverty, and we were still doing pretty well all the way into like the nineties. It's just recently that now things have reversed and now the Commonwealth has been like a net negative for, for our economy. No, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's that's an interesting point because ultimately voters, people will remember how you make them feel. They're going to remember how what you've done impacts them directly. And that can build really a sense of loyalty in people, not only for that current generation, but the generation that they raise. Um, you know, the, the, that can really, uh, you know, stick with people. Okay, looking at looking at the, the, the people you spoke to, Gwen, the, the reporting you've done on this, Francisco, the data that you've analyzed uh, on this topic. You know, what do you think are the larger implications for Puerto Rico if young Puerto Ricans continue to grow in their favorability for independence? You know, what does that mean for political power, policy change? United States, Puerto Rico relations, community organizing, you know, I mean, you don't have to like hit on all those. I'm just like, just kind of spitballing here, you know, take that where you want, you know, what is the, what are the larger implications for, for growing support for independence among young people? You go first one. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, right. Because things have been the way they've been for, for a long time. And sometimes it's hard to think about, you know, what are the possibilities for Puerto Rico when it's had this commonwealth status? But I think as you were referring to earlier in this conversation, Joshua, like 
the protests that were happening um, to oust the governor, right, was such a beautiful display of organiz- organizing and um, the people coming together, people power to say, to, to stake their claim in the future of the island and to stake their claim in the politics and say they are dissatisfied, more than dissatisfied with what how what is happening and that they want to drastically change it. And so it's, you know, you don't want to just go for like, I think it would be a low hanging fruit maybe to be like, oh, these, these young Puerto Ricans, they're going to change things on the island. But I think the possibilities are really there for some real change on the island in terms of its status. I think it's, it is hard to say given um, what direction it will move in, but based on the people I talked to, based on the conversations I had, we're definitely going to be seeing more of that organizing. We're definitely going to be seeing more of people coming out and um, just staking a claim in the politics and, and stating what is right for them and fighting for what's right for them. Um, people are not, I think one of my sources said this to me, we're not going to be silenced. Our generation is not going to be quiet. And that's something that political organization, we've seen that in previous generations of, of Puerto Ricans. It's not necessarily the newest thing, but I think there's just a more, a, an understanding of the power of, of youth too, like youth political power generally, globally, not just in Puerto Rico. And so, um, yeah, the implications are that People are not going to just accept what has been laid down for them. They are going to say, this is, this is my home and I'm not going to be chased out of it. Like the way the, the direction has been moving with this max, mass exodus of people, this is my place and I, I should be able to live here and be able to have a livelihood here and to be able to raise my family here and to work here and to be part of its future. And so I think there's just, there's so much frustration among the young people I spoke with about um, not having had that power to see, you know, the just the denigration of the island. And yeah, I think the implication is that they are really going to fight for it, for Puerto Rico. Francisco, what about you? What are the larger implications here? Yeah, sure. So um, I do want to get into this data a little later about, you know, specifically for uh, young Puerto Rican views on status. But right now I'll just say... Um, so it definitely seems clear that the younger generation is is rejecting the, the Commonwealth, but it's difficult to say actually how quickly this is going to have an impact on Puerto Rican politics. As, uh, the first reason is the youth population of Puerto Rico is like drastically decreasing. So the population over 18 basically stayed the same between 2010 and 2020. But the population under 18, it went down by 40%. So that means there's less younger voters coming up. Um, and there's also some evidence that could suggest that older voters who, like we said, tend to be more pro-commonwealth or, or statehood, they didn't turn out as much in 2020 because of COVID. So there could be a, a reversing in like 2024, at least, of, the, of temporarily, of, of the trends. Um, and the last thing I was going to say before going into what the, the impact, another, one more factor is that um, the younger generation does tend to be pro-independence just overall in Puerto Rican history, and then they kind of shift away from it so where will they shift to will they will they shift this time will they if they do shift will they switch towards actually supporting the commonwealth again or free association or statehood it's difficult to say um overall i do think we are eventually going to be hitting a critical point where the support for the commonwealth is untenable and we're going to have to force a choice between statehood and independence um but it just might take long might take longer than we're hoping 
it'll be interesting to see how this shifts another year from now, 10 years from now. Um, are we going to see the opposite shift uh, as more people migrate off the island? You know, what's that going to mean for some of these general general elections? What's that going to mean for community organizing? Um, it, it's it, it's going to be really interesting to keep our our finger on the pulse of. One thing that I'll add is that um, if the PPD, if they don't adopt to this pro, post-Commonwealth environment, post-Commonwealth era, they're going to be dead very soon. Mm-hmm. I think with the, by the end of the decade. Um, because, you know, some of the left-leaning voters that they relied on, uh, that they, you know, maybe weren't necessarily pro-Commonwealth, but that they didn't want, they saw the PPD as a more left-leaning party. Well, now, you know, um, they have a new party to vote for, which is so. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how Puerto Rican politics develops over the next decade um, as status becomes less and less important for people's votes. I did want to, like I said, go over the, the data that I found for um, the youth's preference on status specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so the general trend I found is that the young people are the least supportive of statehood. Um, but my theory is that they're more anti-commonwealth than they are pro-independence. So, for example, we had a internal poll that the PPD put out. Obviously, this is going to be uh, possibly biased because, you know, they have an incentive to say uh, young people don't want statehood. Um, but what's interesting to note is that the Commonwealth is like tanking. Support right. among the Commonwealth for people under 35 is less than half of what it is for people over 35. And so they are you know, a little bit less supportive of statehood where the difference really comes is they're way more supportive of independence, like three times as, as supportive, and also three times as supportive of free association, um, which, you know, we can debate what exactly free association means, but they're basically saying we don't want the Commonwealth, we want something different. Um, and then, but the other thing is that, you know, this may not be all that it seems, right? And so Data for Progress, we talked about their poll, and what was really interesting was that they both, they pulled both the first preference of voters and their yes or no vote on statehood and and they did over under 45 year olds and over 45 year olds so those were the millennials and gen z's basically only two-fifths of them supported statehood as their first choice but three-fifths of them would vote for statehood in a yes or no vote so there's a significant contingent that you know they don't support statehood as as their their most preferred option but you know if it came down to statehood or no statehood they would be like sure statehood mm. that's like one fifth of more than one fifth of that youth electorate and the crazy thing is, if you're over 45, the numbers were exactly the same. So 48% had statehood as their first preference, and 48% would vote yes. Um, but this may, you know, not be entirely. Um, there, there's some conflicting data here because I also looked at El Nuevo Día with their poll for statehood yes or no had, and they actually had the youth being the only people to vote against statehood. Um, so I would like to see more data data on on, on this stuff. I would emphasize the the need for more more polling on this, you know, and I'm glad that you're working on it, Francisco, because in doing the research, there there are a lack of numbers. Um, there is a lack of data. There's a, a gap there that you are working to fulfill, which is awesome. Um, and yeah, I think these things can be intentionally kind of convoluted and intentionally uh, made difficult for people to understand. And so the more that we can have conversations like these um, and and create space for the nuances and the complexities that people feel, I think that's so important because 
um, it's not just as you were referring to or earlier in our conversation, Joshua, like people have like this, this loyalty to uh, parties, you know, depending on what this party might have done for them in the past or associating this party with something with a, a time when Puerto Rico was experiencing more prosperity or was in a better place, right? Um, and at the end of the day, people maybe are not going to vote according to to labels. I mean, yes, we do see people voting according to just like, oh, here's this is the party I've been with, whatever. But people are going to also vote based on what these these parties can offer them and how they can make life on the island better. But I think in reporting this story, and I think Francisco, you've probably encountered this in your polling. Joshua, you've definitely encountered this amongst all the Puerto Ricans you've spoken with. Things are just so much more complex than, you know, these labels would have you believe. And that's why forums for conversations like these are are so important and people should not be shut down. Puerto Ricans should not be shut down depending on like what um what party they're affiliated with or what status they they prefer because for many people it is more of a, a fluid situation. At the end of the day, I think Puerto Ricans want the same thing. They want a healthy, vibrant island. They want to be able to to not only survive but thrive. They want um their their place to to just be the, to exuberate the beauty that they know it has. And so we're all like on the same page here, no matter what political affiliations we might have. I think it's really important to remember, yeah. we all want Puerto Rico to thrive. We just have different ideas for how to make that happen. Absolutely. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, baseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. People that have listened to the show for, for this season are familiar, so they're going to hear me kind of explain this again, um, at, probably ad nauseum to them at this point. But for your context, uh, the Tokyo Olympics were this past summer. Jasmine Camacho Quinn brought Puerto Rico our second ever gold medal. Did not have to do that. Could have ran for the United States easily. Could have won a gold medal for the U.S. Decided to represent Puerto Rico, embrace her Puerto Rico culture, her Puerto Rican culture. Um, but after she won, a lot of chatter, a lot of news articles, uh, basically talking about her Boricua card. And a lot of chatter online of people questioning her Boricua card. She doesn't speak Spanish fluently or doesn't speak Spanish, period. She wasn't born on La Isla. Uh, I also believe that there are some racial elements to that because she is an Afro-Boricua. So there, all that to say, you know, what does being Puerto Rican mean to you all? Because I found these conversations really interesting. And if we want to get technical, Spanish wasn't always spoken in Puerto Rico. If we want to get technical. You have people that are born on the island that to your points that we've, to your points that we mentioned on the show, people had to forcefully uh, migrate out of uh, out of the island to the to the states because of factors out of their control. Um, you know, so what are the qualifiers and who decides who's Puerto Rican and who's not? So I would love to hear from each of you. You know, what does being Puerto Rican mean to you? Uh, Gwen, why don't we why don't we start with you? Sure. So this is a question that has uh, really <laughs> loomed over my life and my questions of identity for a long time. 
And it actually came to a head several years ago in 2017. Um, actually, no, this is in 2018. I went on a reporting trip with my graduate school program uh, to Puerto Rico, and we were reporting on the island. And it was a majority uh, white cohort who went on the trip, majority of people who didn't speak Spanish. And uh, I was the only like Puerto Rican descendant uh, on this trip. And it sparked a lot of questions for me because, um, you know, as we're reporting on these people, it occurs to me, we're asking people to relive their most traumatic moments and asking them to, um, you know, just tell us all these difficult things. And, and what, what are we doing for Puerto Rico? You know, at the end of this trip, are we exploiting people? And this is a conversation I have with myself outside of the, the Puerto Rico context as well. Like when we report on vulnerable, marginalized people, like are we being transactional and how do we make sure that our reporting is, um, is uplifting them? So all that to, to say, I wind up writing a story about that of, of really analyzing like the politics of, of Puerto Rican media and mainland U.S. media. And one of the speak people I spoke to for the story um, was Julio Ricardo Varela, which, as you guys know, is a very prominent voice in, in Puerto Rican community. So I was having a conversation with him and I brought this up with him. I'm like, you know, I am struggling like identity wise. I know it's not the most important thing, but obviously like the actual flight of people in Puerto Rico, since this was, this was like immediately after Hurricane Maria, that's the most important thing. But I'm, I'm working on these questions of identity. And he told me, and it will, it will always stick out to me. He said, don't let anyone tell you you're not Puerto Rican. You know, as long as you are here trying to uplift the island and, um, you know, hearing from Puerto Ricans and you are going into this with the intention of, you know, making things better and not causing more harm to people that have already been harmed in so many ways. That's OK. Like you can you can lay a claim to this. And I do lay, lay a claim to it. And I always have my whole life. Like being Puerto Rican for me is about family, is about the culture, is about the food. Right. <laughs> Amazing food. Right. Like I'm from a multicultural family. My father's Puerto Rican. My mother's Lebanese and Irish. And I think that's, you know, that's the case for a lot of Puerto Ricans now, especially in the diaspora. We, we come from, from different places. We have roots in different places. And it's just a, another form of Puerto Rican identity. You know, I, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with these conversations where people are trying to, police Puerto Rican identity because I do feel such pride in my culture. I do feel very connected to it. I think that's probably because I was always closer with the Puerto Rican side of my family growing up. So just naturally having that connection has made it an important part of my life. But yeah, I think as we become an even more globalized society and, and you know, this is just the reality that Puerto Rican identity comes in so many different forms. And as long as you love Puerto Rico, right? I feel like that's at the heart of Puerto Rican identity. And I do. It has a very special place in my heart. Um, and so that's why I try and do do the work I do. And I'm grateful for the work that you both do. Well said. I love that. Francisco, what about you? What does being Puerto Rican mean to you? Well, you know, I actually have also, you know, even growing up on the island, struggle with this because my dad is not Puerto Rican. My dad is white guy from Boston. So, um, you know, it was always like, how Puerto Rican am I even being on the island? But, you know, I think the last few years have really strengthened my bond. Being away from Puerto Rico even has actually strengthened my bond with Puerto Rico. Like getting to appreciate, you know, what I had in Puerto Rico, 
the people um, being worried about all the prices going on back home and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of what Gwen said. For people that have listened to our conversation that want to keep up with you both after this, this interview, um, how can they do that? What are your social media handles? You got a website, any big plans in the pipeline? You know, how can people keep up with you? Um, Francisco, let's, let's stick with you. Um, tell us all the sure. ways to stay in touch. Uh, probably the best way is follow me on Twitter. If you want hot takes, if you want occasional data analysis, uh, memes, anything. Um, uh, want to keep up with politics. Um, uh, it's, uh, at FPROSK, F-P-R-O-S-K. And I mean, I guess if you want to look up, look me up on other places, it's the same username. <laughs> um, and also, um, I've got this project coming out with my friend, Elio Trigotti. Um, and it's called Boricos for Democracy. So it's going to be, um, it's, it's a political database visualization project, and we're going to be focusing on Puerto Rico's election results. So the first thing that we're doing is we're going, doing a deep dive into the 2020 governor's race and the referendum, um, looking like literally precinct by precinct, um, within every like house district in Puerto Rico. By the time this comes out, I think the, well, like the first post should be out. But it was for the number four democracy.org. Okay. Um, and then we're also going to have a Twitter, which is at Bodies for number four democracy. And that's also Facebook and Instagram. Right on. Cool. Uh, Gwen, how can our audience stay up to date with you? Yeah. So best way would probably be on Twitter too. Um, my handle is at Gwen F. Avilis. That's B-W-E-N-F-A-V-I-L-E-S. I also have a website, gwenzlinavilis.com. And yeah, uh, that would be the best way. So thank you, Josh, for having us on the show. Gwen, Francisco, thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast today. Thank, thank you, you so much, to have Josh. It's a pleasure being with you. Before I sign off, I wanted to shout out one of our listeners and share some Puerto Rican stories on my radar that you should read more into. At Chicago Rodolfo on Twitter wrote about our last episode on the legacy of West Side Story and said, quote, a great episode of Paseo Podcast, a thoughtful conversation on the problems with a story like West Side Story and the lack of real Latina stories being told and funded to the same extent, end quote. Thank you for listening and for those kind words, Rodolfo. Uh, always great to hear when someone enjoys an episode. Friendly reminder that you can help spread the word about the show by sharing your feedback like Rodolfo did, uh, or um, you can leave a positive comment or the highest possible rating for the show on whatever app you happen to be listening to this on. Okay, uh, here are some Puerto Rican headlines that I've come across this week. I know I can't cover everything, and I try to have a mix of good and bad news. So here's what I have for today. But of course, if there is a story you think we should have mentioned in the show, uh, just add us on social media, uh, DM us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, what have you. Um, reach out to us. Happy to have a conversation and uh, spotlight a particular story. All right. I got about four here. So I'm going to try and run through them pretty quickly. Number one, West Side Story. We just shared that uh, really nice comment from Rodolfo earlier. Um, and we did, of course, our last episode was on the legacy of West Side Story. Definitely give that a listen after you're done listening to this episode. 
but West Side Story, the remake, it fell flat at the box office, had a disappointing $10 million debut. Uh, it actually sold fewer tickets in its initial weekend than In the Heights, which made uh, $11.5 million in its debut. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, In the Heights, uh, you could argue, was a lesser-known song and dance property. Um, and uh, unlike West Side Story, I believe, In the Heights premiered simultaneously on HBO Max. So all that to say, these numbers aren't good for West Side Story. Um, I've seen a lot of commentary on why that is. Um, I, I think I can kind of break it down into three buckets, but mainly I'm seeing people saying, you know, a big reason was uh, who was pushing for the film, you know, white creators uh, basically uh, um, leading the narrative or creating the narrative on a group of people in West Side Story, that being Puerto Ricans, um, you know, creating that narrative for us instead of uh, uplifting uh, BIPOC voices, Puerto Rican, in this case, Puerto Rican voices, that can uh, truly put together a um, authentic um, uh, representation of what it's like to be Puerto Rican um, or of Puerto Rican culture. So that was kind of one generally, I probably didn't do that explanation justice, but that was one um, piece of commentary I saw out there. Another was that maybe it was COVID and people would rather wait for it to be available on streaming and just do it then. Um, or maybe just people are tired of musicals and that's just not really a driver to get people to go to the theater. So even with all the criticism and poor performance, most likely it's going to get an Oscar because that's just the world we live in. Uh, and speaking of the world we, we live in, um, what a great world to be in. Uh, if you're Bad Bunny, uh, he had a, a wild two-day $10 million concert. Some people online have have uh, coined this uh, bad cella because of its Coachella-like atmosphere. Um, but it, from what I saw online, man, I was really, really jealous not to be in Puerto Rico for this concert. I mean, it practically shut down that area of PR. I mean, you had 70,000 fans all there, um, three-hour concerts, um, set list that spanned 35 songs. I mean, you had guest appearances from people like Sech, Romeo Santos, J Balvin, Residente, and probably one of my favorite parts of what I saw online was this really great 11-minute opening montage. Uh, it was a video that uh, basically highlighted Puerto Rico's biodiversity and its people. Uh, it was narrated by multi-award-winning Puerto Rican actor Benicio del Toro. There were legends featured in the video like Roberto Clemente, Walter Mercado, Supreme Court Judge Sonia Sotomayor, uh, boxer Miguel Cotto, uh, Olympian uh, Monica Puig, uh, Ricky Martin, Lynn manuel Miranda, uh, Hector Lavoe, Evie Queen, Tego Calderon, Daddy Yankee. My gosh, the list goes on and on. So that's just really scratching the surface of all the Puerto Rican greatness he, uh, or Boricua brilliance. I should say, uh, that he uh, mushed into this montage. And of course, it ends with him. Crowd goes wild. Uh, definitely a video to, to give a watch to. Um, but uh, one of the cool things, last thing I'll say on this concert, I promise. Um, can you tell how jealous I am that I didn't get to go to this thing? But uh, there was actually a Bad Bunny Museum. So if you got a ticket to this event, it wasn't just walking in and you're at the stage. There was actually a museum that fans were able to experience uh, where uh, Bad Bunny basically put on display things like awards, iconic magazine covers, uh, his Bugatti, uh, different outfits, um, and I think like past sets. 
So it looked like a really cool experience, really cool immersive experience. Um, again, yeah, just sad I, I didn't get a chance to go, but it is what it is. Um, the third story I have is that Time Magazine released its 21 most anticipated books of 2022. And at the top of the list is a book by a Puerto Rican author, Xochitl Gonzalez. Uh, it's her book called Olga Dies Dreaming, which comes out on January 4th. Um, so really dope to see a Boricua get that type of recognition. Uh, Xochitl was actually uh, kind enough to get me an advanced copy of her book. So I'm, I'm really liking what I've read so far. We're actually going to have that interview with her coming out in the earlier part of next year, probably January. Uh, but it's a good book and it explores things like, um, you know, uh, rifts that exist between generations and a family, you know, other complex family dynamics, um, you know, even gentrification is a part of, of the narrative. So uh, definitely a book worth getting once it's available uh, in 2022. Okay, last story I'll end on, uh, fourth story for y'all today. Um, it's, a, it's a local Chicago story. Uh, this one comes from the local outlet, Block Club Chicago. So uh, public restrooms are hard to find in Chicago and uh, some older people wanna change that with a pilot program. So this is actually something that's spearheaded by older persons, Daniel Laspada and Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. Uh, she's actually a former guest of the Paseo podcast. So definitely give a listen to that episode if you haven't already. Uh, but basically, Daniel, Rosana, they both introduced a resolution in the city council. And uh, they're hoping to see this pilot program bring about more public restrooms. Uh, making them more available throughout the city for people experiencing homelessness. Um, and not to mention anybody in the city who might find themselves in one of those tough situations where you just need to go. You need to get to a bathroom quick. So how great would it be to just be able to walk in a place and, and not feel pressured to purchase something or uh, you know get kicked out because you're not purchasing something uh, just to basically do something that, that should be you know, accessible and available to anybody to do sanitarily. Another thing to note about this resolution is that uh, numerous organizations and social service providers working in Chicago have also signed on in support of it. Uh, in October, a Chicago Tribune story, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, this story found that fewer than 500 structures in the city contain free public restrooms with few or no barriers to entry, such as security checkpoints or client-only access. So in short, this is definitely a good cause that I really hope gets accomplished. I think it's important, but we'll just have to wait and see if the local government makes it to that point or makes it a priority. That's kind of the, the big toss up here. That's all the headlines I have for today, mi gente. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did or didn't, let us know, podcast at gmail.com or at podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also show your support for the show by subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing and leaving the highest rating in app really helps more people find the show. And like I mentioned before, showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Got to do a quick plug for the YouTube channel. Uh, some good news. We finally got over 100 subscribers, y'all. So pretty excited about that. Um, it's a tiny but awesome milestone, I think. Uh, really, I think what it allows us to do is uh, a couple little things. But most importantly, we could change that URL to actually say... Um, you know, Basel podcast. But 
Anyway, uh, next milestone, help us get to 200 subscribers. We're only 99 subscribers away. In our next episode, we welcome Sonia Manzano. You might know her as Maria on Sesame Street. We invited her on the podcast to talk about her new show on PBS called Alma's Way. Uh, talk a little bit about her early career and get her thoughts on some other um, topics. But uh, you'll have to listen in to that episode to see what we talk about. Um, that sounded like a horrible tease, but hopefully that hooked you. Um, okay, until then, as always, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview or share a new story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, paseomedia.org to do just that. See you in two weeks. Cuídate.